0: You ever hear of a guy named Jonathan Mardukas? Mardukas,
1: yeah, I know who he is. What do you know? He's has got a count
2: embezzled a couple of million from some Vegas wise guy and he gave it to charity. That's
0: very good. The only thing
3: is, is that it wasn't a couple of million. It was $15 million. It wasn't some Vegas wise guy. It was Jimmy Saran.
0: Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast.
3: How much time do you got left? Friday midnight, I
1: default. I hit the 4 This Friday? That's five days. Forget it. You go find
0: him. Oh, give yeah, me my money. All right, look. Listen to me. I'll give you 4 I'll give you 50 grand. The following Review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. I'll do it for 100,000. 100, 100,000? Are you out of your mind? This is an easy gig. It's a Midnight Run
2: for sake.
0: Today, as part of our throwback series, we'll be discussing Midnight Run, starring Robert De Niro.
1: The has been hiring me to bring you back to L.A. and that's what I'm doing.
0: I got money in those. I'll give you whatever you want.
1: Stop by shutting up. I know you all have two minutes and already I don't like you.
0: Charles Groden.
1: I don't have to do better than that because the truth. I can't fly. I suffer from aviophobia. What does that mean? It means I can't fly. I
0: also suffer from acrophobia and claustrophobia. I'll
1: tell you what, if you don't cooperate, you're going to suffer from fistophobia.
0: John Ashton. Did Eddie put you on this? Of course
1: Eddie put me
0: on this. Son of
1: a bitch. You don't have a contract with him? You got a contract? Yeah, I signed it on Monday. He called me in Pittsburgh.
3: He said you were fucking this thing up.
0: Yafik Koto. Where's Jack Walsh? Oh, he got off with the other guy two or three stops ago.
3: His real name's Mosley.
0: I'm Mosley! Dennis Farina. I thought you told me this guy was going to be on the plane.
1: That's the information we got, Jimmy. That's the information we got. I'm going to tell you something.
2: I want this guy taken out, and I want him taken out fast.
0: And Joe Pantoliano.
1: Listen to me, Jack. You gotta be back here in less than two and a half fucking days. A half million dollars of my money. What the fuck is going
0: on there? Directed by Martin Brest. What's
1: the matter? I got an ulcer. An ulcer? Yeah, I got an ulcer. I got a big fucking ulcer, and
0: all your bullshit's starting to make it bleed again.
1: You know why you have an ulcer? Because you have two forms of expression: uh, silence shit. and rage. Good.
0: Hello and welcome to the Rewire Movie Podcast. It's the podcaster who couldn't even deliver a bottle of milk. It's Galley in Glasgow. These things go down.
2: It's Devlin in London.
0: Hey
1: Tony, Tony, up along each It's Patrick in London.
3: I'm in the lobby of a Howard Johnson's and I'm wearing a pink carnation. This is Aiden in Vancouver. Hey. Oh.
2: Hey. Hello. Hello. Long time no speak. It feels
0: like it's been an entire freejack since we last spoke. 30 years in the future,
3: as my race car driving uh, career has been thwarted. You got
2: bone jacked (laughs) just before your car hit a bridge, and now here you are. We got the meat.
0: Well, we we are introducing the fourth most important export from Canada. Yes, just behind maple syrup, Celine Dion. And Brian Adams. We have Aiden Dungay. Hello, Aiden. Hello. All the way, all the way from the leaf. How are we doing?
3: Excellent. Thank you very much. I'm glad that the, uh, I'm glad that the listenership sp- uh, spiked enough so I could come back on like a year and oh, a half. Oh, the needle was later.
1: moved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. it when was, was free, Jack? I can't quite
0: remember. Uh,
3: 1996.
0: Hey, <laughs> <laughs> hi. Yes. We are back and we're going to be discussing. You know, after Who framed Roger Rabbit and The Exorcist, we felt like we needed to stay, we need to stay in the 80s. So we're going to stay in 1988. And Aiden, you have chosen to discuss with us Midnight Run.
3: Yes. This is a movie that's like, I feel has always been with me and I've always gone back to rewatch it. And there's just like, it's, it's a, it's kind of played throughout my entire life because there was very rarely, a time where something like genuinely like grabbed my dad outside of outside of, my my dad who is a farmer worked and works a lot. It is like a lifestyle. It is that's like a full on life thing. Basically, this was a movie that um I remember sitting there as a kid with my brother, and it was a school night. And my dad came into the living room and basically said that there was something that we had to watch, and it was something that he had to watch with me and my brother. And that we, um, and that he didn't care the fact that we had school the next day and it was, you know, like a, just a regular weeknight. He'd seen, um, midnight run was going to be on TV and he needed, to, and he needed to watch it that, like at that moment with us. And it was, so it was like quite a big moment being very, very young and like just sitting there. And I think it's the first. Movie, I remember actually sitting down with my dad and watching all the way through and just everyone being transfixed by it. So it's, it's got that, it's got that like resonance with it, which is pretty, which is pretty amazing and pretty big. And I, and it's kind of stayed with me, but also just like then watching it and watching it unfold and then just seeing how much my dad enjoyed it, which was like a big thing for me as well. So it's a, and so yeah, and it's just constantly, constantly come back uh, and like something that I've been able to, Rewatch. I mean, I could watch this movie endlessly, which was not being the case with a bunch of other stuff that, like, you know, like stuff that I've either been forced to watch or that, like, you know, there's even even some of my real, like, highlights of my like, favorite movies, you putting stuff in top fives. Like, I still, half of those movies I still couldn't watch with the regularity I could watch Midnight Run. So.
0: No, that's interesting as well. And this is not to. Your favorite films, but one of the things that struck me in rewatching this, and this is no sandwiches, but knowing what you do for a profession, you're in the camera department. I'm not throwing shade at the movie. But the film doesn't exactly, uh yeah, you know, it's not exactly looking particularly good.
2: I, I gotta say, when I was when I was making mine, and we'll we'll save this for later. But I actually, I actually think this. Maybe this is just you know in comparison to the sort of stuff that we end up seeing more recently. I thought this film was very competent and at times quite striking looking. The Vegas sequences look Not great. I think the, those, I think the Vegas sequences look great, but that's
3: I I I agree. There's I I think the thing is like so well composed and so well put together and competent is definitely the word for it. Everything plays really well, like it's all resolved. Really There's nothing. There's nothing flashy about it, which I know there's this thing where it's like, you know, in the world of big wonners and like, and how can you push camera movement into doing something new? Like, I love a movie like this, where everything is just do- it's made by proper craftsmen. And I and bear in mind when I'm at work and I'm, cause I'm just in reference to is, is like I'm a focus puller in the camera department and I love a challenge and I love camera movement and I love. Being able to like you know do something you know cool because it keeps the the day you know alive and keeps it going, but when I'm watching stuff like this, it's been put together so well and it's so solid. I have nothing but admiration for how this has been done, and I love the fact that it's it's all uh it's it's all, it's all quality. It's not just it's it's not just flash. It's a. Uh, Everything is in service of a story.
1: Is that why it's like lived long for you? Or is it the the idea that watching it with your dad and brother is, is, is it, does it hold a time in your childhood, which is warm and comforting, like a Christmas film? Or is it the
3: quality of the film that keeps going back? Well, I, I can't, I can't disassociate one from the other, because my, honestly, that was such an amazing that was also awesome. it was it was such a it was such an important kind of moment in my childhood to to get to sit and watch it with my dad and get to see that reaction and but then also like the reason i kept watching it is because i was so engrossed by it and because i wasn't allowed to watch at that point i wouldn't really been allowed to watch anything that de niro would have done because he wouldn't have done anything that was kind of like appropriate for like something my age he wasn't doing like kids or family movies at that point i don't think he was doing like very heavy drama or like you know like big important roles and then this was something that was kind of like a bit lighter and, and you know it's not to say it was family friendly because it's i guess at the time it, it, it it's not and the subject matter stuff but it was like it's funny what you consider family friendly now from being like growing up at the time that we did and the stuff that we watched when we shouldn't have really been watching it
0: Oh, yeah, we, we've we had that aid. I mean, yeah. me and Patrick have discussed this many a time about Robin Hood, Prince of mm-hmm. Thieves being, you know, gather around every children. Yeah. Let's watch Robin yeah. Hood. Yeah. Uh, well, like, uh, yeah, let watch people. Someone gets their arm chopped off.
2: When I was like five, I remember, you know, my brother used to try and freak me out by putting his hand over my chest and just going, Kalima. <laughs> 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 and that was apparently considered extremely appropriate. <laughs>
0: i do like the idea though this uh this kind of uh keeps the the stereotype alive that all farmers swear like like absolute (laughs)
3: swines (laughs) i do get the like that feeling that maybe it's my dad he'd remembered more about like the like the the pacing and the feeling of it rather than the the details within inside the thing was
1: De Niro like his favorite actor his like no no honestly
3: my dad is such a a mixed (laughs) book it is hard to know what he loves outside of his family (sighs) and outside of this (laughs) outside of being a Being a farmer.
1: Gally, can we arrange your dad and
3: Aiden's dad to sit
0: down and watch a film, please? It'd be a two-hander that would be worth filming, I think. (laughs) Uh,
3: Definitely. I I, I remember, like, my dad telling me stories about how he went again, go see ACDC live at one of the um, venues in Newcastle, like, and he saw him with both sets of singers, and you know, that was the thing. I was like, oh, that's amazing. I was like, was ACDC one of your uh, like favorite bands. He's like, Oh no, I was more into Slade. <laughs> <I'm> like, <"What? laughs> like, no, no, but you know, so he's a, he's, I don't know, he's such a mixed bag. He's, I love him to pieces, obviously, but like, he's such a mixed bag.
0: Aiden, your dad and my dad. Good dads. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Solid dudes, solid guys.
0: Instead of midnight running, you're going to be like, son, angel heart tonight. Yeah. We're made. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, what about you patrick any um any history with this one? Well, I
1: thought I'd seen it.
0: I could have sworn I
1: had i recognized the poster you know it was like him running with the gun and grabbing Grodin. um and when I watched it, I realized I had never seen it. <laughs> um I feel like I must have seen bits of it because there were familiarities here and there when they were sat down on the train. And there was another scene that felt very familiar to me. So I don't know if that was something in passing at home. Or, I, I don't know. But, um, I, I thought, yeah, I definitely thought I had. I haven't. I watched it twice this week. Um, so thank you for picking it. Cause I, it, it was funny when, when you, when you picked it and I thought, Oh, I've seen that before. I couldn't recall anything. And it was a really weird feeling. So I was glad to learn that I actually hadn't seen it because I'd have been very disappointed in myself if that was a true, um, true thing. But, uh, yeah, anyway, I, I imagine both Gally and Dev have seen it as well. So Devlin, what's your little history with it, please?
2: What's weird is that I couldn't give you a, um, any kind of definitive first viewing and what is, even weirder is that the thing I remembered most about it is Dennis Farina I fucking love Dennis Farina and every time I saw him in a film afterwards and he'd pop up on screen and he's like it's such a really distinctive line delivery and he does not alter it from film to film because why the fuck would you <laughs> And but it turns out that every time I saw Dennis Farina in a film I was like oh, I love this guy it, it was this film I was thinking of it's like it's the 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 casual delivery of threats of violence. I'll bury this phone in your head. Like it's just, he's so good. Um, so I had seen the film, and uh, um, uh, Charles Grodin had had stuck in my head for it as well. But it had been a very very long time. So the vast majority of the film was completely lost to the mists of time. So it it wasn't quite like watching something afresh, but it wasn't far off. I don't think I'd seen it in God I. 20 years, probably more. Um, so, uh, um, it, it was, uh, here's a real, a real joyful revisit. Like, uh, yeah, um, one that maybe I'd only seen once, maybe twice, but yeah, it's a good one. Um, Gally, is this one that, uh, you watched? I can so still...
0: similar to you. Um, I, I'm, I'm with you on the Dennis Farina thing. Um, I always think best thing in Snatch, and the only reason they cast him is, are sort of like, can you just, do your midnight run stuff again.
1: Um, <laughs> Shut but, up and sit down, you big, bold fuck.
0: <laughs> yeah. Anything to glare? Yeah, don't go to England. Um, so, <laughs> no, I um I had a similar experience, and I always now, with these films where I feel like I can't point out when I watch them, I think, right, did me and Devlin and Patrick watch it at uni? We didn't. You know, I would remember watching this with you, and we didn't. So, yeah, this has got to be a 20-plus since I'd seen it as well, and I think Aiden, it would have been a television watch. And one of the things mm-hmm. that I, um, this is me being a kind of oh, back in the day, but there was something about the event of so and so is going to be on television. Yeah, don't yeah. watch it, it in the radio you're gonna time, miss it, right? and you're gonna have to wait twelve months. Maybe it might get a rerun at, at Christmas. I, I think about this, and this is quite sad. But I remember when this happened with Ghost because I was. Uh, I was very much like looking forward to watching Ghost and then it was on television. I was like, Oh, I've
3: got to watch Ghost, but it's, but it's on late. I remember Aliens. That was, that was the thing when I saw that Aliens was going to be playing like, uh, in two days time, I think it was. Then I was like, me and my brother, we were like, okay, we've got to make sure we've got like a videotape <laughs> ready in the recorder and we're like, we're going to sit like oh, and I was it was one of those ones where like I was going to we were going to watch it together but I was going to be forced to go to bed at some certain point so my brother was going to my brother was going to be like stopping at the um at the at the, tra- at the commercials at the trailers <laughs> at the at, the, at the advert, <laughs> and then restarting it as the it came back on so we could have this copy but it was all about basing it off this this is our shot this is our shot to to actually have aliens
0: Before we get into story time, we're going to do a little bit on pre-production prior to the big discussion about the movie, because there's some interesting bits of information that I think are worth discussing.
3: Should Paramount have got their way, it would have been very different.
0: Yes, indeed. Aidan is absolutely correct. So just for information, listeners, Paramount were the ones that initially had kind of bid it in. Got the movie. Uh, um, George Gallo, the the writer, you may know him from Bad Boys fame, um, but before he did Bad Boys, he did something called Wise Guys, which was quite popular. It was a Brian De Palma movie. So he comes up with this idea. Martin Brest has just come off Beverly Hills Cop. He doesn't want to do another cop movie, but this is, well, man, it's a cop adjacent, isn't it? But it's Bounty Hunters. Mm-hmm. Um, before they were popularized by a certain Hawaiian individual. and Paramount take it and go yep De Niro reads the I think he reads the script and says I'll definitely do it because he's looking for some comedy and initially De Niro I mean this is mad he wanted to do Big he wanted mm. to be Tom Hanks in Big Whoa, kind of weird yeah. can you imagine Big with De Niro <laughs> I mean I find it weird watching Big now knowing that Tom Hanks
2: I think he had sex with that
0: woman but he's a child <laughs> Imagine that's De Niro. Yeah, but he's all man where it matters, yeah. <laughs> he's a man. He's, a, he's in a man body, but it's still a child's mind. I mean, I don't know what that says about me thinking about the new one. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so yeah, that would, De Niro wanted to do big. The studio were like, meh. But he wanted to do comedy, which I thought was interesting because obviously we don't consider, well, our generation, I would say, I'm not speaking for all of you, but I certainly don't think of De Niro as a comedic actor.
3: No, you think about you think about him as like the day, and deer hunter and Godfather and just like heavy roles.
2: Well, I was thinking about this uh, um, that so like four years, three years before this, he was in um, Brazil, and he lobbied heavily to be in Brazil. And he there was a little no a little moment that he does in the film when he's um when he's picking the lock because you know uh, uh Matt Ridley. Uh, our, uh, our regular co-host, Sir Matthew of, of Ridley, of uh, Catrick Village. Um, he always talks about what is the character doing when you first meet them. And De Niro, he's obviously has some influence over this film, and he's very meticulously picking a lock until he drops the instrument that he's using to pick the lock. Now, I remember Terry Gilliam talking about this, that he said that when De Niro turned up in um, Brazil, that he became quite obsessive about that. He plays a, a maverick, absailing heat induct repairman, um, who is a symbol of the resistance uh, of this kind of sort of oppressive future slash past regime. And he said that De Niro's whole thing was that a he wanted to know what the props were going to look like because he wanted to be able to realistically look like he was doing plumbing, and that he wanted the plumbing to look like open heart surgery. <laughs> And so it was like De Niro wanted to do a comedy where he got to do something very, very specific, where it looked like he had like a very specific skill with his hands. But if you go back to like his breakthroughs are in um the De Palma movies that he did, like Greetings, is is comedy. Um, the Corman movie he did, Bloody Mama, is like this sort of exploitation comedy. It's not really a comedy. It's it's a kind of mad sort of uh. uh Turn of the century gangster movie, but he's playing quite broad, and even in the early Scorsese stuff, he's got like this wired comedic energy. It's
0: Mean Streets, isn't it? Mean Streets. He's he's it, despite him
2: being a uh, a low level street hoodlum, he's, he's funny. He's funny in Taxi Driver. Like, I mean, the 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 comedy is of the blackest possible form in Taxi Driver, but he's he's funny. So maybe it was like maybe his Raging Bull. Raging Bull through through midnight run maybe that's the
0: and he does it in midnight run right there's a bit where um yavik koto throws him the glasses and he half catches it and then drops it yeah Yeah. yeah.
2: it's all (laughs) maybe it was like the the lamar uh, you know the raging ball thing was was when he sort of garnered the reputation for being this weighty thespian because i think before that i don't know if he was considered to be
0: but it's interesting though devlin isn't it that um and we've talked about this in the past i think we mentioned it when we were discussing dicaprio in titanic that He, he knew that he needed to broaden his, you know, the old crust of the clown. Look at my range. (laughs) (laughs) So he's, he's thinking, he's thinking comedy, but he doesn't do another comedy until yeah. I think we're, analyze, we're rocking ball yeah. and then analyze.
1: What about the king's of comedy?
0: I the but
1: this subject matter is but yeah, it's, it's but is,
2: in that sense he is as well. funny in the king of comedy. But it's like he get well, he gets to play like but it relates to what you he said. He gets about. to play a creepy goofball. Yeah. Like yeah. It, he shows that he understands <clears> humor, <throat> humor and he understands how to use humor to deepen the dramatic roles that he's doing. Possibly in a way that he maybe loses track of in the sort of eighties and sometime in the nineties as well. Stuff like the mission or. Um, once upon a time in America, as great as it is, is super weighty. You know, there's no levity in there.
0: Big would be weird, but anyway, <laughs> the studio said, "Don't do big."
1: But the studio were the deciding factor to put him in this, not not the director.
0: No, they were they were happy. I think, um, and quite frankly, I think anyone would be, wouldn't they? Right? If you had a yeah. any script and they said, "Oh, De Niro would like to play the the protagonist," oh, well, thank God, thank you. Okay. Yeah. The actual uh, the actual discussion was about who is going to play. The Duke. They got lots and lots of people in, but the studio wanted a star and they wanted Robin Williams.
3: That was one of them, but there was the, the one that who Paramount and what Paramount initially wanted, they didn't, they, they wanted to change the sex of the Duke's character. So there'd be like a sexual undertone and they could make it more of a love story. And so they were going to, they wanted to gender swap that Duke character and they wanted to cast Cher.
0: Oh, if I could turn back time.
3: But Martin Brest <laughs> put his foot down and said "and said no. And so when they took it to Robin, they said, okay, Robin Williams. But uh, Martin and Brass always wanted um, Charles Grodin from the start because he'd seen him in a movie called Heaven Can Wait, where he's a mm-hmm. small part. But he said every time he saw him, he totally outshone Warren Beatty. He said he dwarfed Warren Beatty with every scene they were in together. Now I've not seen Heaven Can Wait, so that's an, but so, so he, so he stood on and said, but Robin Williams was going to come in. He, he agreed to audition. And when leading up to the audition, Martin uh, Bruss had another, had another meeting with Charles Grodin and gave him the part on the spot and basically cancelled on Robin Williams before the audition, which pissed, which pissed a bunch of people off apparently. And be and because Martin wouldn't move on from, um, Charles Grodin, Paramount were like, well, we can't. They didn't think it was going to work, which is obviously I find insane now. But they, and so they they uh, they sold it to ended up selling it to Universal, who were who were more than happy to because cause Universal saw the success that Martin Brest <laughs> had had with um had had with uh with Beverly Hills Cop, and so they were willing to to let it to let him run with
0: it it would have been an interesting film right with robin williams and what are the we we'll get into grodin's performance but i think the the slow burn that i think is the key to the success of the movie but i can't and this is robin williams at his most zaniest i mean yeah. i don't think he sits quietly no doing doing subtle reactions to to, to De Niro for the first hour of this movie I, I
2: wouldn't change i wouldn't change grodin whatsoever I, within the last couple of years, um, when the MGM channel launched on Amazon Prime and they offered a free trial of it and I jumped in and I was like, whatever, I'll, I'll watch whatever they've got. And I watched, of course, FX and FX2, Murder by Illusion. Uh, but also I watched, um, uh, um, they they had Moonstruck and uh, Mermaids. And I don't think I'd ever given those films the time they deserve because Cher is fucking really good in this era. She, she's really charismatic she's really funny she's charming i i it would have been an extraordinarily different film but i don't know i i feel like there's an alternative universe where Cher actually has quite a crack at this why not this is going to sound wrong as i say it but
0: it's well intentioned the movie doesn't have a great deal of female characters in it and um, the, the one female character they do have it's a really well two it's a really
2: great mm. scene Not to say that this is like a lads movie. Oh, you would, yeah. You would have to do so much, like, structural, yeah. You'd have to rip out the roots of this thing to make it work, yeah. Well, I just think even the language, because it's obviously
0: so aggressive like De Niro is shouting constantly at Grodin
2: could you imagine him
3: making those threats to share yeah. like saying you know I'll, I'll put your fucking head in the toilet and da,
2: da, da, and, like you, and like literally just throwing her around in handcuffs and stuff yeah no, of course it, yeah it, it makes locking her in a bathroom yeah, it makes it it would it would be a ground-up rewrite so.
3: I just I have a real appreciation for like stuff that could that could be made at this point in time where the movie is allowed to be exactly what it is. It doesn't have to hit every demographic and it's just, it's just allowed to play on its own, which, which like I, I'm, obviously I love, I do, I do like appreciate and enjoy the fact that, you know, which it's the um inclusivity that's trying to be garnered in the industry now, because it's been, it's been sorely lacking for such a long time. This is a, obviously this is a movie which, I just really appreciate exactly what it is.
0: Right, we shall get to the plot. So, Patrick, I would like you to remind us and the listeners of the plot to Midnight Run.
1: LA lockpicking bounty hunter Jack Walsh is enlisted by bail bondsman Eddie Moscow to bring in Jonathan the Duke Mardukas, an accountant who embezzled $15 million from Chicago mob boss Jimmy Serrano. Eddie needs him bringing in by midnight Friday. Five days' time, else his $450,000 bail defaults. A midnight run is an easy job, right? Well, FBI Special Agent Alonzo Mosley is after the Duke too, and orders Jack Walsh to stay away. Jack steals Mosley's ID and puts his own picture in it. I wonder what he'll do with that. Jack makes his way to New York after some investigating and is approached by two dopey gangsters, Tony and Joey, who offer Jack a figure that's followed by six Zeros to hand the Duke over to them. After all, Jack let Serrano down years ago, so maybe he wants to make it up to him. Jack turns it down, though, and continues with his mission. He captures and handcuffs Mardukas and swiftly takes him to the airport, but Mardukas warns Jack that he can't fly, he's too scared. Jack ignores him and brings Moscow to tell him he's on the way but little does he know or Eddie the FBI are listening in on Eddie's calls and Eddie's assistant Jerry is tipping off Serrano's gang maybe this won't be so easy after all Mardukas has a panic attack on the plane prompting the pilot to eject Jack and Mardukas looks like they'll have to find another means of transportation as the pursuers regroup taking the train Mardukas offers to pay off Jack but he's never took a payoff in his life and isn't going to start now, not by a long shot. But Jack and the Duke talking now. The Duke advising Jack not to open a coffee shop and questioning his diet. Meanwhile, Eddie is getting anxious and deploys Marvin to find Jack and the Duke now too. Marvin and Jack have beef. Now there's more obstacles as Marvin manages to cancel Jack's credit card. Amidst the smoking and checking his watch, Jack learns that Mardukas stole $50 million but gave most of it away to charity, and reveals he has a wife and daughter in Chicago. Mardukas persists and suggests they should visit them. Marvin has caught up to them, but Jack beats him and takes Mardukas to get a bus instead, bringing Eddie to update him and subsequently telling everyone else. To add more misery, he can't buy the bus tickets with his card now, and scrapes together the cash with Mardukas. The chase across country continues after Jack tells he left the force years ago due to a drug dealer corrupting the police around him, who planted heroin on his house, forcing him out to avoid arrest. Jack steals cars, hitchhikes, and does indeed visit his ex-wife. He sympathises along with their daughter, giving them the car and some cash. All the while, the mob, the FBI, and Marvin are hot on their tails. Gunfights, sunglasses, and exploding helicopters ensue. As their unrequited relationship grows, Mardukas learns that Serrano was in fact drug dealer who fucked over Jack. And subsequently now, Marvin is the successful pursuer, catching up to Jack and leaving him in the dirt. But Marvin has stupidly given Mardukas to the idiot gangsters, and Jack understands Marvin has double-crossed Eddie, so works with Mosey to make a deal that would hand the FBI Serrano, and Jack gets Mardukas back. Time is running out, but he might still be able to make it. Especially now he knows Mardukas can actually fly that lying son of a bitch. Jack bluffs to Serrano that he has computer disks with enough information to put him away and arranges an exchange for Mardukas at the airport. Will Jack's plan go smoothly? Will Marvin fuck it all up? If he doesn't, Jack risks losing out on his payout, but more importantly, risks Mardukas being killed and Jack can't let Serrano win again. Especially as he's found himself a new friend.
2: Bravo, you son of a bitch. A lot of threads to keep hold of there. Very,
0: very apt. Yeah, very, very apt this. But I'm going to start straight away by kind of waxing the car of the writing of this movie because
1: I had to, uh, sift over quite a lot.
0: Well, yeah, there's a lot of twists and turns. There's a lot of, there's a lot of just characters involved. Converging plots, there's all sorts of shenanigans going on, but one of the things that I found in rewatching this, uh, Aiden, was it is incredibly easy to follow.
3: Yes, yeah, it's, it's a neat script. It's very. Good. It is so airtight uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Like that, I was, you know, I was trying to. Th- I was like, there must be something in this that there's <laughs> like a thread that's been left there, but everything everything works everything goes one to the other but apparently that's what martin breast was like very very good at he like was very meticulous in. he liked to make things free flowing Mm. um when they were filming but as far as a plan and and how stuff ran together like he was very very meticulous with it and apparently there was a great quote from george Gallo, who was the writer um who said that there was a one of the week they kept, they went into the studio on a weekend when there was no one there and they set up eight folding tables and they had they had and Martin had all the paperwork and all the storyboards and they just set everything out to make sure he said it was the most intense weekend of work that he's ever done because they were just all they were doing was making sure everything worked in there and that there weren't anything there were all the the you know nothing was being spoon fed mm. but nothing was being. Being left out, that everything makes mm. sense, and I think, and, and and I think you see it in a in a movie that's got an insane scene count. I mean, there's so much going on in this, and there's like all over the place, and but it all travels, it all travels perfectly, like you're saying. You, you can follow it all, and it's like, and I think part of them filming it in as close to chronological chronological order as they could, like it does. It takes you. It was made on the journey that they were doing the story and it, it just yeah it's just it's solid everything's the, the writings is, is very very solid
1: just to play a little bit of devil's advocate here what about the helicopter <laughs> i agree with everything you're saying aiden the first time i watched it though the helicopter did give me a little bit oh it's
0: a jolt isn't it but i think at that point in the movie <laughs> i'm not like we've we've discussed about films having like one or two kind of I'll, I'll give you that. Yeah.
1: yeah. For me,
0: the movie earns that moment. And actually we are we're on an incremental like stages of of kind of not wackiness, but it, it is ramping up well, a little bit. I
1: kind of found the the sniper rifles a bit wacky at the bus station and a bit like, fucking you know, this is over the top. And that was a stepping stone to the helicopter for me, along with Elfman's score that becomes kind of like caper music uh, yeah. uh, uh, throughout this. So the film completely understands what, what it's doing and the where it's taking us on this adventure, because that's what I saw the script taking me on, an adventure. You know, it, it has every mode of transport, and they hadn't quite hit the helicopter yet, so I thought, fuck it, let's put that in.
2: The sniper rifles mark like the um the sort of the the I guess end point of my favorite bit of what you were saying, Aiden, about like um quick scenes that will like right geographically, you'll be bouncing all over the place, sometimes in the space of about fifteen to twenty seconds. But it tells you exactly what you need to know and then we move on. But none of the scenes are boring. There's, there's a there's a so the sequence between um Marvin coming onto the train to try and Get the jump on Jack. Okay, so we go from uh, the train to uh, Koto in the Fed's office. We go back to Eddie at the because um, uh, he's taking the call, and you got the uh, the the guy is it Jerry, his assistant, who just keeps yeah, selling out from the payphone, which is just brilliant. And the FBI in the van. You got the FBI in the van. You've got the bus station. They're running the card again. You're on the bus. You then find you go. Back to Alonzo Mosley, then you go back to the bus, then you meet, uh, uh, then we meet Dennis Farina again in Vegas, then we're into the sniper section. All that shit happens in about probably at most three to four minutes of screen time. But each scene is,
0: is, is small and it is, it is, it is filled with, I wrote in my notes, personality. Even the goons, when they're, when, when the goons are shadow boxing and they're feeding back that it went wrong, that is just such a wonderful human putt.
2: The the other scene with uh, uh Farina in, in the office in in Vegas, it starts with like a, a big shot on a, a balcony, a like magic hour shot of Vegas with all the lights and stuff. Then he walks down a staircase and he's wearing an incredible it's a combination of a polo shirt which is somehow stitched into the bottom half of a sweatsh- sweater <laughs> with a giant knot embroidered into it and then he tells <laughs> philip baker to go get a cream soda this is probably me projecting a little bit because i i get kind of
0: frustrated at seeing um kind of comedies especially comedy action films now is that like the stars clearly you know they're based around the stars but i love the fact that this movie takes time to humanize Jack, and in doing humanising Jack, when he visits his family, we actually see that, you know, he's been a pretty crummy dad.
1: Yeah, but there's there's little crumbs leading up to it, like, on the train when he um... Uh, um, my duke, the duke says, is that the only two dollars? The only tip you're going to give him that these guys work for and he has that moment where he stops. He's like, yeah, he's right. And he goes to give him more money. And it's, there's little bits like that that I thought were genius throughout, but to
0: build up to what would, you know, it's not an action sequence. It's a relatively quiet scene. And you just think, well, in a comedy drama, that's a essentially a chase movie to take the time to say, no, we're going to just stop. We're going to stop and we're going to have a quiet sequence where we realize that this this guy's got unfinished business and actually that he's been a pretty crummy dad. Like that whole see, scene, De Niro and the girl are doing some great stuff and they don't really say anything. Because he, he's got nothing to say to her, he doesn't know her. Listen, her stay Jack. out of this. Jack. All
2: right, same old Jack. You get your feelings hurt, and then you just walk around and hurt everybody yeah, yeah, else. The last
1: thing I need now is one of your lectures. I'm
2: not lecturing you, stupid. I'm trying to protect oh, you. Oh come on! Ted man. is going to be home any minute. We're all going out. It's an important night for us.
1: Important night? What's so important about tonight? Wait,
2: let me guess. What's it payoff night? All right, that's it. Get yeah. out. All right, get out. Listen,
1: I'm in a big fucking jam. I just need to borrow some money so I can get this guy back to L.A. and I'm out of this miserable fucking business forever. Can't you understand that? Denise? You got so big. Ah. Sorry. I'm going to go now. I'm sorry.
3: No, hold on.
1: Best thing about it, Gulli it's not just those two, it's the wife and Grodin yeah. as well. All mm. four of them are... she
2: breaks at one point. It's, it's, she turns, it's like my favourite scene she actually. She turns away um, and covers really her good. mouth and Grodin's like he's interjecting and then sometimes he stops and yeah. staring at the yeah. ceiling like a really embarrassed, yeah. like he's so awkward. It's very clever.
3: It's f- and it's filled with it's filled with sp- oh, obviously with Groden, like such quick little like and um, witty moments, like really funny little moments, but it is a heartbreaking scene, like between, uh, De Niro and his daughter. And like, there's it, honestly one of the like really like insanely powerful, mm. but still dispersed with, uh, with Grodin Do like when they when the kid sits on, is sitting on their stairs and goes, you don't look like a criminal. And he goes, white collar criminal. Like, even, even when the kid
0: says, who, who the hell are you? Yeah. Nice kid. Yeah. <laughs> Just just lots of little, and they're not even quips, are they? They're just, like, observations. But because he says them, and this is where I think, I'm not so, I mean, maybe Williams could have done it, but I just think Grodin just finds the pitch as a foil to De Niro, who is, and he says it in the film, he's like, you've only got two modes. It's like, you're either silent or you're rage. And De Niro is, like, doing, he's doing that throughout the whole movie. And I love the slow jibing him. It's like barbed comments constantly, and they are just baiting. But De Niro <laughs> is ready to talk, right? That's the whole thing. Is like, yeah, because yeah. then you start thinking about it. It's like he's, he's, he's been You're kicked out of Chicago, things, right? kicked out of his family. Who's he spoken yeah, to yeah, yeah. ever about any of these things that oh, have ever and he, happened? Yeah, because he has his dream, and, and
1: this is his meal ticket. But both characters have different degrees and showing of exasperation that matches their personality. I don't know whether like I'd be worried that Williams wouldn't have quite matched the deadpan Grodin performance here at Galley. Um, it's, I, I couldn't, I, I can't not see him in it, but Grodin is so nuanced here. And you said the Dumb and Dumber thing, you've got to have two kind of opposites. And I I couldn't quite recall something I saw Daenerys and It was such, so normal and exasperated and, and reaching for a normality that I, I, you know, you, you, sometimes you are talking about, if you put Arnold Schwarzenegger in that position, you don't believe that he's that person. You
2: mean you, you don't, don't believe, believe that he's a, he's a mattress a, salesman but, from <laughs> Minneapolis, Minnesota? You're my favorite customer! <laughs> <laughs> For example, very <laughs> good. But, Atlanta, but I fully know, believe
1: it. that De Niro was this guy and I fully believe that Grohonen was an accountant and I think Testimony to the casting and the performance, and actually the the script writing.
3: in in that scene with his um, ex wife and daughter, I think it's very important that it's still you, there are still those like jokes that are coming, but nothing undercuts the seriousness of the and the heartbreak of that scene and and the um where essentially Jack Walsh is seeing what his life could have become if it hadn't have been and, and essentially what he could have been or can be, or what he feels he can build towards if he has, you know, once he just does, once he just does this job and gets this money. Although his, his out for the, is very poorly thought up. Like it's almost when he's on the train, it's like, oh, I've just, I was thinking maybe I'd open a coffee shop. It's like, what is that? There's, there's barely anything there. There's like, so you've never,
0: you've never really outside of ordering coffee showed an interest in coffee
3: and because and he's and and when he's seeing his, his ex and and his and his daughter it's obviously crushing for him but at the same time he's not made the effort to go see them in here yeah. or like in 9 years you know he's he's essentially put himself in exile when he's been like run out of Chicago um but and and so yeah his his like uh his way back onto Onto the ladder of society is just this quite poorly thought out notion <laughs> yeah. because it's not really. It doesn't seem like it's something he does. That he actually wants. It doesn't seem like he really does want a coffee shop. What he wants to be, which you see near the end when he's actually happy, is he wants to be a cop again. And when he finally realizes, when he realizes that, and the fact that his, um, that you know, he's actually putting aside the fact that he isn't going to get back together miraculously with a woman that he hasn't seen in nine years, but loves.
0: Even the, even the rejection of the money from the daughter, like he, there's, there's a pain in that and a tragedy that he can't explain to her that the reason he doesn't want to take the money is because she says it's babysitting money, which means it was probably from the father who he knows is on the take. He doesn't want to go through that whole discussion with a girl that's not going to comprehend the reasons why.
1: That whole scene has some very mature theme and writing that. It's really well executed actually where it, um, and it relates to that is the moment when Jack has a go at his ex-wife. He doesn't want to have a go at, he doesn't mean that, but he has no idea or control over his emotions and he doesn't know how to express himself properly. It's the fragility of man that's shown there within it. And you've got Grodin, you know, smarming (laughs) beside him that it's got the moral compass and high ground. And he's, he, that scene perfectly encompasses that whole, sense of place for Jack for me and that's why he can't take the money off his daughter but he can of his wife because they have the adult relationship and they have the understanding and he she he knows he can pay her back and it's it's a a contract but with his daughter he's failed her with that contract whether the writing could have taken it at the end that he realizes and has a moment with Grodin he says go back to your daughter or set that coffee shop up in Chicago something cheap like that but I think you could be right that he was happy when he was putting on the wire, he was happiest. It's like, Oh, like, like being a cop again. I I, I see that.
0: You mentioned that there about the, the complexity of man, Patrick and the unwillingness to, to open up the, the argument with the wife informs us as to why De Niro just keeps falling into the traps that Groden sets when mm-hmm, they, when yeah. he's having the conversations, right? Cause like, he's open to it. Yeah. Groden knows he's like, I can work an angle. And and obviously it changes, it shifts from, instead of like survival, they're actually building a rapport. Yeah. But initially, Grodin's like, how do I get to this guy? Right, I need to find information about him. Did anyone ever ask Grodin any questions about him? It's Grodin that gives him the information. You see how... And
1: you think, like, what other relationships does Jack have in his life? And maybe Marvin's competition and he's got uh, um Eddie Moscone who just shouts at him, the whole, Raffi Sofretto who just shouts at him all the time. And this is a guy that's softly spoken and smart and intelligent and it's giving him something, like, if there's any homoeroticism in there, I didn't quite... Pick up on that, but I read a couple of reviews that said about it. But I it's think so. just a, it's just a genuine, genuine friendship he needs. Yeah, it's a nurturing. But, um, it's... I
2: think you can tell from immediately that Grodin is like from the moment that he catches De Niro in his shower cubicle being menaced <laughs> by a giant, fluffy, white cloud of a dog. When he puts his hand up on the wall, Grodin's eyes are already going. Like, you can see him looking around the room. You can see him trying to fathom out where he is, what he's going to do, and what he's going to do next. You can see the calculation in, like, Grodin's performance. I have to tell
1: you, a restaurant is a very tricky investment. More than half of them go under within the first six months. If I were your accountant, I'd have to strongly advise you against it. You would, huh? Well, you're not my accountant. No, I mean, if I were your accountant. I told you. I took you out here. No, I'm just saying that it's a very, very tricky business, and... If I were your accountant, I would really strongly have to advise you against it, as a, as an accountant. You're not my accountant. I realise I'm not
0: your accountant. if I were your accountant. And you're absolutely right, Patrick. I don't think I've I've ever seen De Niro play normal before because he's always a psychopath. Like I think about Goodfellas and when Mm, the opening scene when he's talking about to Joey Pants about trying to get the money. I'm just thinking about Maury and like today day, but he's choking him <laughs> with his with the telephone cord but de niro plays this so i just yeah it's just normal like i couldn't believe how low status and kind of like what and what i loved about the screenplay was that nobody is exceptional like no one's got like movie logic well they're like they know the plot and they're gonna they're masterminding it everyone makes human mistakes
3: yeah it's but he's He's also very workmanlike in everything that that he's doing uh, funnily which is like a reoccurring thing with a lot of the characters that are in like with Mar- with with both the bounty hunter characters Jack and Marvin they neither of them are portrayed as being geniuses Marvin is portrayed as meant to be being like Marvin's actually insanely competent at what he's doing most of the time <laughs>
0: well he's not <laughs> he just doesn't know how to negotiate a good deal Aiden. that's all that Marvin's... <laughs>
3: I mean, everything, they go about everything with such this blue-collar workman-like manner, and just even pretending. Oh, I'm looking for my friend Jack Walsh. He said he's going to be on this train. Like this is, and this is all stuff that kind of you see in Beverly Hills Cop as well, where you know Axel Foley, but he, he pretends to be someone else on the phone. Do you know? It's 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 all so. It's all. It's like, it's not evil. It's not genius-level stuff. It's just literally okay, what do I need to do to get the job done? Oh, pick a lock here, pretend to be this person. Yeah. You know, it's all...
0: Can I, can I say this though, Aiden? The difference I found with this to Beverly Hills Cop, and I wonder if it's down to Eddie Murphy as an emerging star versus De Niro who's an established star, is De Niro feels far more comfortable in 100% not being the smartest person in the room. I always think about Beverly Hills Cop and he's constantly lecturing the, uh, well, it's partly down to the fact that he streetwise and the Beverly Hills Cop are, like, you know, sheltered from the is reality the of real, by real police yeah, work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah where well, it's like coffee grounds to cover the drugs. It's like, well, I'm sure that every cop would know that, wouldn't they? Not just someone from Detroit. But in this, De Niro is like, he's he's got the skills of a cop and of a bounty hunter, but he's not a genius.
1: And also, you know, he has the genius mind to... Steal the i d put his photo in it, but then when he goes to get the bus, he says the wrong name yeah, and yeah it's littered yeah. with
3: yeah, and that interaction all played like oh my god Grodin's Reactions, just his silent facial expressions at the background of that. You entire probably you probably didn't
1: pay for the credit card. I part. was losing <laughs> you it. Just, you didn't pay for the credit card. It's
2: The little shakes yeah. of the
3: head and the rolls of the eyes. It's, it would, well, he's t- having, he's t- having t- a moment with the woman <laughs> behind the teller.
2: When De Niro's ripening through his pockets <laughs> and he's giving it the, he's giving her the <laughs> <laughs> my,
1: my, favorite Grodin look in Paul's Aiden, um, is when they're in a coffee shop and they run out of money. And he says to the waitress, "How much is a cup of coffee? Fifty three cents. How much is a cup of tea? Fifty three cents." And he just looks down and stares at the money on the table for a solid 10 seconds. You
3: see his eyes darting between the, the coins as well, <laughs> just to double check everything.
1: That bit, I love that. But I'll have a tea, please. That I think it's genius. I think it's lovely, great, great moment.
0: We haven't really done that many comedies on the show, but but certainly, like, I feel very British. In I don't like, I don't like. Anything too big?
1: If we are going to compare it to films of the time, like *Planes, Trains, and Automobiles*, is outlandishly comedic and, and throughout, and then has the drama running through it. Whereas this isn't—I didn't find this so like wildly
2: but, comedic. But in, in, that's actually an interesting comparison. Like if you shave off some of the more kind of wacky premises of—I'm thinking, you know, the bit where John Candy looks like the devil. Is the tone of this all that different?
1: That's where the drama cuts through the whole thing, but there's a subtle, I'd, hmm, you got me questioning myself now. I, well, but I, I think, think there's a more subtle element to this yeah. comedy in this film than it's a little, uh, wilder and a bit more, oh, how do I, how do I explain it? You know, Steve Martin go, goes up, up to 11 at times and down. This one doesn't, Grodin stays on a, on a sarcastic level and De Niro may hit a 10 when he gets off the train gets back on the train because he's going nah <laughs> you know because he he thought he'd fucked him over. even early
0: on though patrick like de niro's de niro's relatively understated until he does his he's got a couple of big moments but i think about like the opening the opening capture of the guy when they're saying you know did he go quietly? Did you come quietly? <laughs> well, Fuck you you man. <laughs> and it, it, again. That to me, that you know, that is funny. Like I don't know, it just hit my
1: sensibility. I hope I am making sense, but it. he it doesn't have a guy like mistaking two pillows for an arse cheeks, you know, like yeah, that yeah, kind yeah. of pure snapstick and outlandish humour. Whereas driving a car that's half you know burnt to shrivels
3: throughout th- the entirety of this movie a lot of it is just the setup and tone allows it to play more like a comedy one of the big yeah. things being the soundtrack to it all which is which we get into later. but but i mean essentially if you were to take out the, the the soundtrack and the music um and also just a general lightness and tone to the thing if you actually listen to what De Niro saying it would be pretty fucking harsh and pretty because he's you know he's he's being aggressive. Same as with a lot of Dennis Farina, like a lot of if you if we were just to look at the words on a page, it like most of his interactions are pretty harsh as well and threatening, but they're all played in a very in in a like yes, aggressive but also still a lighter tone, right until probably the most menacing bit of the entire movie is when Dennis Farina like slaps. Grodin in when mm-hmm. he's at the airport. That is a play for actual menacing, and I think a lot of that is just it's it's just, it's it's amazing the tone that's kind of get is is being set by it, and I do think a lot of that comes down to the soundtrack.
1: Elfman's music is so surprising to me, but it's it really gives this film a language and a and a signature, doesn't it?
3: So, I think one of the things that kind of that hit me with my very first watch and the thing that my dad loved the most about or loves the most about this movie is that the soundtrack is like really really does something for him and me us um and I remember like this is a soundtrack that I genuinely listen to like on my headphones when I'm cycling on the bike and stuff like that and i remember I remember back at university when the I can't remember that you, Patrick, or you, Galley. at one point you were saying you'd been uh, oh, I am, um, I was like, oh, what you, what you been doing? And you're like, oh, I was listening to, like, the Superman soundtrack in its entirety. And I was like, what? I do remember that. Not, <laughs> I was like, there's not even any fucking songs on that thing, man. What are you talking about? And it was yeah. one of those ones where, where I was so like, what? This is, people do that? And then it was like, <laughs> and I, it turned out a hell of a lot of people do that, as in listen to full-on soundtracks. As in, that aren't just made up of, of actual tracks that are like scores, and then and so when I when I have grown more and become less of a shitty jaded teenager and you know young young, young adult, like and then I'm th- now thinking about being like, oh, what am I talking about? I used to listen to this like this all the time, and I still listen to this all the time, and I can listen to it in its entirety as a as a, like a as a piece and. Yeah, I, uh, I feel a bit bad now thinking you are a <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but
1: When I was in, um, when I went to Levi's in Leeds, Aidan, um, a local magazine, I don't remember what it was called, but it was some cool no, fucking magazine zoom. That, was, <laughs> that would stop people in the street and take photos of them and shit like that. Was it
2: the store pigeon? Could have been
1: that pigeon. Yeah, that rings the bell. Yeah. Um, And they did a piece on us because, you know, we, I worked with cool people who were dressed up, Gally might remember them, but they did a thing that was like, so what are you listening to? What's on your iPod at the moment? And everyone was listening to like, you know, oh, Detective and and, like, and, uh, Ford like, yeah. and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, I'm listening to the Amelie soundtrack and uh, who, <laughs> the assassination of Jesse James. like, what? Like film school music. They didn't publish my, my uh, little bit. <laughs> yeah. That
2: was motherfucking. They
1: put everyone else in and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm, not cool enough for this. <laughs> who, who would get your, um, Ham Neil award, Galley? Would it be Ashton or Cotto or would it be Jerry Pants?
0: Pants is doing some great phone work. I mean, he is literally shouting down a phone throughout the whole movie and that hair, that hair is incredible. Me,
1: it's Jerry Pants. Every time he's on screen, would... he's just so wild. It's great.
3: It's
0: best like that last,
3: though the, the second to last phone call where Robert De Niro's called, what De called him. And he's like, hey, he's telling me to go fuck myself. You're telling me to go fuck <laughs> myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's just Christian where he's just so sick of everyone fucking with him and all he wants. Like he's not like, he, he's, he's obviously not a, like a good character, but he's also not done anything wrong. Yeah, other He's, than a, he's you know, a, like a, he, a bit he, of a sleazy guy. Yeah.
2: When he's a, uh, uh, um, when Jack comes to see him to get his payoff for the, for the first kind of catch on the guy and he's clearly stalling to not pay him. Yeah. And then he's with, with Jerry as my witness. <laughs> it's the best type of line delivery is one where you genuinely, I'm convinced that was an ad lib, but I'm also fairly certain that that, that feels so good. It's scripted but that yeah. he sells it like an ad-lib is so <laughs> <laughs> just...
0: Well, I don't know if this is true, but I found it to be an interesting wrinkle, partly down to the fact that we know now that the way that films are made and people's time is incredibly precious, that you would normally just have a recording or just nothing or someone else say the lines. Apparently, according to the trivia, um, De Niro did all of his lines down the phone to Joey Pants, so that is a natural. You know, they are obviously reading their lines, but but it's a natural reaction to De Niro reading the lines down the phone. So, and I, I think you feel that. I do think you yeah, you get yeah. that sense, but only because there's a couple of times when he is about to say something, and then backs out and says something else. And that it's those moments that make you feel like, right, this isn't scripted. They they're bouncing off each other. They're yeah. bouncing, yeah. And and it's the same with Grodin and De Niro. And and I know there's been there's a couple of scenes that. Uh, been stated as being improv but what what i think martin breast was doing and and actually Yafik koto mentioned it is that and we know that this is something that happens a lot with you know once curb your enthusiasm came out and was such a huge success that this became like a way of doing comedy is that you just do like different versions Mm. anchorman was you know will farrell's renowned
2: they carved out an entire second film of just shit that they made up on set on but
0: martin brass was very much a keen you know aiden said incredibly structured when it comes down to what we're going to capture but once we're at that point it's like right give me 20 30 different looks
3: i got it i got it i got
1: it
2: i got it i I think it's me
1: Jack, are you? Listen, I need you to wire me $500 to the Western Union office in Amarillo, Texas, right away. Wait a minute, what do you need with $500 on a bus? And why the
3: fuck aren't you on a plane? Did it ever occur to you that I am a professional and that I might have my reasons? We are driving now and I only have enough cash to get to Amarillo. We had to scrap the bus. Fuck the bus! I want to know what happened to the goddamn plane! He doesn't like to fly. He
2: doesn't like to fly! What the fuck does that mean? Listen to me, Jack. you got to be back here in less than two and a half fucking days. A half million dollars of my money. What the fuck is going on there?
1: Eddie, 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 I swear to God, don't start with me now or I will shoot him and I will dump him in a fucking swamp. I am in no fucking mood for this. Just send me the money and I'll have him back
3: by the deadline. You hear me? Yes. He would shoot an absolute ton of film stock. There was was apparently a film he did where it was like a, a... a holiday weekend I can't remember what the film is off the top of my head anymore but they were, they were filming over a holiday and they were coming to a holiday weekend and basically he called Kodak and made them open the lab because he'd ran out he was running out. oh that was on scent of a woman it was on scent of a woman he was running out of film so and and you know they, they did it. and when it came to uh when it when it came to them when it came to them um like with let, with the amount of footage he was shooting for Midnight Run, they were saying, well, you know, you you can't print everything. He goes, why would I shoot a take of Robert De Niro and not print it?
0: Some comedies, some big expensive comedies that have tried this, I'm thinking about the Paul Feig Ghostbusters 2016. You know, you can tell that they've, they've kind of tonally, it probably doesn't feel on the keel because scenes are clearly like cut from different takes mm. and then the best bits. So it's, it's a technique, but I do think you need, you know, it's got to be hound by script, right? It's got yeah. to have some structure. What you can't do, you can do it in a curb your enthusiasm episode that's 30 minutes. That is also incredibly structured. You can't have a movie that just says, right, let's get a bunch of funny people and give them a, essentially an acting improv class mm-hmm. and say, right, here's the scenario,
2: go. But you think that it was, it was trammeled you're talking about like allowing for variations in um i always think of um john favreau and vince Vaughan on this like just because it was the probably the first films that i ever you're saw so that, money to- that um that had this that like uh and that i listened to the commentaries of because they were just they were just a huge deal when we were when we were young and, and uh, uh, Favreau especially has always been so generous with his process. Like he will quite happily just explain in great detail on his, on his uh, audio commentaries, what is and isn't improv. And he will say that like, he will scenes that, that people think it's just Vince Vaughn just going off on one. He'll say, no, we sat down and we meticulously constructed those sentences. Whereas other sequences, uh, it's, it's knowing what you can let people have free reign on, but you always have to have your eye on what's, what's the fucking point. Like what's the point in getting a cheap laugh if it's going to derail the tone of a scene or if it's not going to fit into the overall structure of of the film. And I think that um, this film weirdly doesn't feel loose. It's long. Like it's, it's, over two hours is is a stretch.
0: Yeah, for a, for a comedy in the eighties, I think now we would say, you know, they're all they're always over two hours, and you go, oh, this is self indulgent. Like you don't need a comedy that's over ninety minutes. But I guess a compliment to the movie is I like, don't feel the length. Yeah.
2: yeah, no, I didn't, and I feel like that's because they knew like this is what we need. So maybe that that session of getting the crayons out with the <laughs> with the big pieces of paper. Kind of interesting that Patrick thought he'd seen this movie is that it is
0: somewhat derivative of other 80s action comedies, right? Like, there's a bit of Lethal Weapon in this. There's a little bit of Blues Brothers. There's a little bit of Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. There there is a little bit, and I wrote it in my notes, like, screwball comedy. You know, you've got the lower class and upper class, and let's skewer the upper class. Mm -hmm. It's not quite as pointed as that. Mm -hmm. But Grodin represents White Collar Criminal, De Niro is very much blue is, collar. Is that because it's know, still
2: in the first wave of the mismatched body movies?
0: Because we see some bad ones. Yeah. I'm thinking about Fled. You remember that one? Oh, yeah. Stephen Baldwin well, and Lawrence Fishburne. Lawrence Fishburne's the smart one, Baldwin's oh. the young, dumb, full of cum.
2: My <laughs> goodness, I've never heard of the thing you just said.
3: Oh, I fucking watched that so much.
2: I'm gonna
0: find buddy buddy comedies that where they are literally handcuffed together, and there are loads. There are loads.
3: <laughs> is it is it Will,
2: Will Patton as well? Oh, as like Will the, Patton, um... he's great.
0: Yeah, so... yeah, he's he. It's basically like the future. They they watched the future and said, "Can we do this but make well, it?" Because a you had movie. like the defiant yeah. ones
2: is the is the old all old, old school one with Sydney Poitier, and then you've got um uh the infamous Black Mama White Mama from. Uh, a AIP with um, uh, uh, Pam Grier, which is honestly pretty good. And then um, this kind of, you know, this this handcuffed together for the duration of this thing seems to kind of. I used to watch Fled so much. Like, Never oh, heard of is this film. When is, when is when is this from?
3: Oh, like late nineties. Which Baldwin is like, it? Like Stephen. Stephen.
0: It's Stephen when he so was so he was just coming off Usual Suspects. So everyone's like, I think he might be bigger than Alec. It didn't happen
3: fled was a movie that i had an X rental videotape copy of because i wasn't willing to wait for it to be released on <laughs> official like the official video release i had to have a copy to watch wow. again and again yeah
2: jack what
1: which further do you think we have to go none of your fucking business Oh, no, because you know eventually i'm gonna have to go to the bathroom shut the fuck up Did you ever have sex with an animal, Jack? Remember those chickens around the Indian reservation? There's some good-looking chickens there, Jack. You know, between us, yeah, a couple of them might have taken a shot at.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so apparently, when they when we're doing that scene, that was one of those ones where Martin Brest ah, said to, um, he was saying to Grodin, like, just just just. Breaking, make, make, <laughs> denier a break. And he was just letting him run and run and run. And so that all came with there. Uh, and, and then when Grodin did the, said the chicken fucking thing <laughs> and it broke him and got the reaction he wanted, he was like, that's amazing. He goes, um, but we can't use that. And then he said, he stopped himself and said, hang on. When I'm saying you can't use that, that's exactly what I should be using. So we've got it.
0: Now I want to talk about Martin Bress because I think in the, in the in the hollywood like history pantheons he's definitely got one of the weirdest filmographies and 100% like got the well not quite the flash de bont, but certainly <laughs> a a haunting effect at the end of his career so here's a guy who delivers as Beverly Hills cop
1: well he directed one of my mother's favorite films gally and Let let's see if you can guess which one
0: it's uh, meet joe black cuz it's fucking 75% of the world's population's favorite film it's such a strange one that everyone
2: loves they love anthony hopkins talking about these minted lamb sandwiches it's, it's almost definitely somebody's parents favorite film is kiara's dad's favorite film of all time <laughs> it's me Chobre. my mum my loves that film
0: the score is wonderful though I, I can't remember is it horner or is it thomas newman who does the score I, can't remember. It is it is hundred percent manipulation. Dot com. I mean, it is so it's Thomas Newman tugging at every single Ooh. string of the heart.
3: Claire Fellaini. Is that not necessarily unlike Midnight Run though? With the score, is that like a Martin Brass uh, like like <laughs> thing? Like, I mean, it's this the score is always like. It, does he lean heavily into score enhancing story? That's yeah. Like, so yeah, it's That's like okay. the manipulative. I mean, like the manipulative. Mm-hmm, I understand. Of Joe yeah. Black to the light hearted rom
2: if you take the harmonicas and the slide guitars and the jazzy bass out of this film, it plays <laughs> it could play flat. Like it's it's not that it's
1: oh it would play uh, did Aidan mentioned it earlier though, but I think it would also play a lot more serious. Yeah. Um I can't I haven't seen Beverly Hills Cop for a long time, but does the music how, of
2: Beverly is Oh, God, yes. oh yeah, there. yeah. A uh,
0: Banana on the Tailpipe? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Harold, Harold, <laughs>
2: uh, Faltermeyer, like that kind of, you know, that insistent, you know what it's also got is like a ticking clock, uh, uh, on Beverly Hills Cop Cause it's, it's, um, it's all kind of Giorgio Moroder-esque synths. So it's got that, you know, it
0: doesn't have the pop songs though, this, does it?
2: Unless you listen to the soundtrack where the very
3: last track, which plays over the credits, has full lyrics and is sung by Danny Elfman with his band Oingo Boingo, but under the name Alonzo and the B-Men.
2: Oh,
1: okay. Fantastic.
3: It's, and so, and it is the most 80s pop track you'll ever hear, and it is
0: fantastic. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, that makes me happy, Aidan, because I've not mentioned it before, but I I do find that this movie has got, like, Decade-defining tropes woven within. You know, the one-punch the one punch knockout was 100% a thing that I thought you could do.
3: Yeah. Human. <laughs> Especially from such a short little run-up as well. You don't even need a big swing, just a short little jab.
0: When Marvin finally works out the magic sauce to get this man who's uh, <laughs> apparently afraid of flying to get on a flight, which is to knock him out, it's such a short... Punch. From a seated position across... <laughs> <laughs> it's a true ice punch yeah, yeah, yeah. and De Niro De Niro locks him out but he's still a little bit woozy he's like what are you doing Jack <laughs> <laughs> like I used to think that's how punches worked I, I've been in a fight Ever. So I'm I still thinking that if I punch yeah, someone, I'm pretty convinced they'll go down. You know,
2: <laughs> I live in a pretty sketchy part of East London, but I always feel like, oh, all I need to do is just sort of like glance my fist past somebody's chin and they will duly turn their head and then slide to the ground. <laughs>
0: yeah. I- Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I love the, the idea that the, the, the title of the film is said in the first reel. I think. Joe Pants is like, it's
2: just a midnight run. Two fonts in the um in the uh uh in the title where you've got the title like, card midnight, and you've got that nice very spacious kind of sans serif font and then you've oh, got the has been oh, looking at this. Hello, what's this? You've got that kind of like It's the, it's a lethal weapon uh, writing for the It's run. like a oh, do you remember that computer game that you, you used to sit in like a a red Ferrari and you drive around. What the fuck was that called? Outrun or yeah. something?
0: Outrun, yeah. yeah. Okay. Streets of Rage also had the yes. same font yeah, as well.
2: Yeah. It's the kind of bleeding nib kind of, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It
0: means that there is a run yeah. that will happen at midnight. Yeah, it's good. And then there's also the smoking. Like just everyone smokes. In fact, smoking becomes a plot point yeah. in itself in itself. It's great. Yeah. There's lots of and-, and happy endings and money. Everything is money.
1: Marvin has a crack in final line doesn't he It's watch your cigarettes with this guy jack <laughs>
0: <laughs> when yafit koto steals those those cigarettes the first time i i was belly laughing to myself <laughs> just because it was so subtle and i've seen people do that with lighters like oh yeah can i just get you yeah and it's gone
1: It's we, spe- we have talked about individuals but as an ensemble
3: it's it's great stuff from everyone isn't it right on point across the board. Even the dude that plays that has got only a few lines in the in the desert diner at the end. Yeah, like, he's he was in Conan. He was in he was in Conan the Bob. What no?
2: Conan the Destroyers. This like is the guy who serves the him second, the, the the coffee right before he gets picked
3: yeah. up. and he gives
1: him he, he he lights the match to do his cigarette. Yeah.
3: That's like Tracy Walter, who was in Matilda as one of the FBI agents. Cyborg Two. Glass Shadow or Shadow Glass? Ooh. He was in Young Guns too. Conan the Destroyer. Why the, I, I remember from Conan the Destroyer. Where he plays the thief dude. That are the two little. They diaries.
2: gave that guy so much focus that I was kind of thinking, is this like a cameo? <laughs> Should I know who this is? Is this like uh, when they <laughs> put Tom Waits in the Postman or something?
3: No, I did have a little theory with Joey and Tony. I did that only came on from this recent, a recent, the recent rewatch where I was like, are they? Are they a couple? <laughs> Where they're in the hotel room together at the end, yeah. foot doing his shoes, and one comes out the bathroom. Is that why they're so like, like friendly with each other? Because they're, they're just just boys being
1: boys.
2: Yeah, <laughs> tough on the road, you know. We bond
1: back yeah, in the Corral territory now, aren't we? It's just there's the absence of women here, so they filled it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no one in Vegas.
1: Who's your who It is Scanny? I have a very obscure one. When. Jack rings the house in New York to find where the address is and he traces them to New York. He speaks to him, Mrs. Nelson on the phone.
2: Oh.
1: And that is Lois Smith, who, uh, her, her groovy is practically a food source. And she was in <laughs> Twister, Minority Report. It's a bizarre rookie what it is.
2: Wow. Wait, she's, she's the aunt from, from Twister? Yeah. She's the one who feeds wow. them food. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, it's basically a food sauce, a food group of its own.
3: Oh, uh, these yeah. mashed potatoes. Oh, she's Mrs uh,
1: Nelson on the phone. It's the wow. weirdest, like...
3: Well, because i was
1: looking at an IMDb, and I saw her name. I was like, I don't remember her in the film. And then I had to figure out where she was. Wow. Oh.
0: Well, to be honest with you, I know it's probably not um that good to be like Charles Grodin is the rookie who it is. But to be honest with you, because I hadn't seen him really, I haven't seen... I haven't seen the Heartbreak Kid from 1972, the original. Oh, God, I've seen the remake. Ooh, Jesus. <laughs> um, you know, so for me, he was always Beethoven doing Poundland Steve Martin. Oh. And that now feels like, well, I mean, I love those movies, like, a lot, especially the music.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, <laughs> but now I can go, actually, you know what? This was a dude who had some serious talent. He, he has a weird career. Like he didn't work. Yeah.
1: He had no credits from 94 to 2006. Does anyone know why?
2: Um, I, I don't know the specifics. I know that he, he sick. uh, won't travel. He'll only work in and around New York. Well, sadly, he passed oh. away two years ago this
1: month.
0: Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. Mm.
3: Two, mo- was it two months after Yaffa Kota died no. as well? Something
0: like that. Yeah. Rewatching this Aiden, I was seeing or I think what I was seeing was like the influence of this movie, which I don't know in the, in the eighties pantheon is midnight run in, is it in the discussion with like Top Gun, Beverly Hills Cop, you know, you think like super 80s lost boys, There's certain eighties movies that are back to the future where, you know, they cosplay, I'm not suggesting anyone cosplays as Jack Walsh. I mean, or Alonso. Yeah, that'd be something, but you know, it's yeah. not in the it's not in the discussion, it's, right? Like no. Midnight Run is seen as a as a good movie, yeah. but I don't know if it's, it's up there with like pop cultural landmark. It's kind the of a 80s,
2: co- kind of a cult thing. I yeah. mean, cult being a, a difficult to define term, but yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not the it's not the established cult canon of eighties movies.
3: I know this is just a snapshot of the year that it was released, but I mean the Gene Siskel's Best movies of 1988 when it came out. There are, I'd say, a couple of movies that beat it out, because it came, Midnight Run came, he voted as number, he put down as number six. The movies that, that he put before it for that year were Last Temptation of Christ, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Bull Durham, Little Dorrit, The Accidental Tourist. Now I'd argue that Probably, Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Bull Durham are more in the public consciousness from the from movies from the eighties. Like Bull Durham being like you know a big sports movie from the eighties that, that you might that refer to, and obviously Who Framed Robert, Roger Rabbit being more of a like uh, like uh, what's the word for it like so, like public and more in the public consciousness than Midnight yeah, Run.
1: It's a blockbuster it, of sorts in the end. Yeah,
3: definitely. yeah. So I mean, so and it definitely doesn't. To the mass audiences, it definitely Midnight Run won't hold the, that like place in the pantheon. That I mean, like you say, movies like Top Gun are like defining and
0: yeah. If you went into a HMV, I don't think when you're strolling like scrolling through the posters, you know, the Jack like, 80s Funko. We should have done I a box office of a... the
1: year, gally
0: We should have. I kn- the movie made money though. I mean, I think it was what 30 million budget, which for the 80s is quite big. I'm, I'm assuming that.
3: Thirty-five million, and it made eighty-one and a half million.
0: Eighty-five is yeah for for inflation, that's pretty good. But but like I say, I don't know if it made the cultural imprint. But what I do think though is I do see the legs. Like I see true romance in this, like the converging of different, uh, you know, different stakeholders, different groups, and you know, characters that are kind of out of, well, not quite um, out of their depth, but you know, escalation of the threats and it all compounding and converging into one thing. You know, um the the whole buddy dynamic obviously has been
2: been done since the screwball days of the 30s, but Road Trip Caper, I think probably um maybe Lethal Weapons stole its thunder a little bit in terms of the to bigger mullet. The the yeah. way that um people <laughs> went on to make movies like this, they would be described as it's a lethal weapon. It's like how Die Hard kind of set a template.
0: This feels more like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang or The Nice Guys than it does Lethal Weapon. Which is odd considering yeah. that's
2: all Shane Black. And maybe this was what I was thinking when I was watching this because I was trying to think of modern day equivalents and everything feels like what they've lost is the tightness and the sense of purpose. If, if that makes sense. like um, mm. I watched a, a uh HBO Sky Atlantic series um with Donald Gleason called Run. Did you guys see that? I've heard of it. Um seen, Phoebe bridge was one of the writers on. And um that suffered from from it was quite propulsive, but it also felt like we're constructing set pieces in order to play for time. And this film didn't feel like that. This film didn't feel like Every little set piece, even though that's, we all know that that's what it is, because that's what films are—they're entertainment devices. But you know, the episode where they meet a helicopter and he has to shoot it so it hits a a cliff face, and then they go down a rapids. Like you know, (laughs) if you if you take it in the abstract, it's extraneous or it's just a thing that happened. But when it happens within the sense of the film, it all flows. It's cohesive, and you know, I think that that's. That's maybe um Yeah. You've you've got a caper, you've got a chase narrative, you've got a buddy movie, you've yeah, you've got a ticking clock. But also the ticking clock is like four and a bit days. It's not like it's in real time. Four and a bit days means you've got time to talk about fucking a attractive looking chicken or something like you know.
0: But it's also got enough time to say, Hey De Niro, get off your high horse. You know what, actually you're looking at the world and life incorrectly. You know? His idea of Yeah, yeah. There's yeah, only yeah. criminals and then everyone else. And it's like, well, it's not quite as black and white as that, because if that's the case, then look at the way that people look at you. You know, you get the sense when he goes into the when he takes the perp in at the beginning of the movie and the guy's like, Oh, uh you <laughs> know, he kinda of, he makes a joke, doesn't he? He's like, Well the soda machine's empty. <laughs> like, oh, you caught one. Yeah, it's a, it's a harsh dig for somebody who used to be a cop. And then when you find out his backstory, and again, all that unraveling of character feels organic, like he's not willing to spill the beans straight away. There has to be a building of trust. And yeah, all of that stuff feels, it just feels true to the film that we are presented with in the first 15 minutes. Of the, and then it carries that through. Whereas I think sometimes in, in more modern comedy, they're, they're, they're worried about you losing interest, aren't they? Whereas this film is very much like, you know what? You're going to have to sit for about 40 minutes. It's not really until, uh, Grodin does his kind of, they're too big. Then, you know, that, that, that's like the first time you see a kind of overtly comedic scene, I think.
2: Most of it is still, is relatively underplayed, which that's why it was, why I thought it was interesting when you said planes, trains and automobiles, which is like, it, it reminds me of when they pull into that. Motel. I think it's the second motel that the film's kind of like stretched out a bit. Is that when
1: he sat outside in the yes. snow? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he has the human mo- moment. Yeah. yeah,
2: you know, it's, it's it's great. It's the the props are daft and the situation is daft, but the performances really aren't.
1: But but it like Midnight Run. It it, it at its core, it's to it, it's a lost person who needs someone. Yeah, and them coming together and it's like a. Almost, you know, it's, it's yeah. a relationship that's growing and it's deep and emotional and yeah. really catches the heart. Um, slipping, sandwiches slipping out there into my summary. However, we have a pop quiz at the ready. Pop quiz, hotshot. shot. Well, um, Aiden, I'll come to you, uh, third because it's your first quiz. Reminder of the scores. Um, we've got Matt on six. We have Dev on five galley on to m uh, our visitor was on one so you, aiden you can tie with m on this one um what is your buzzer galley i get some donuts. <laughs> Devlin, what, what's your buzzer are you familiar with a dish uh, of a potato dish uh, Lyonnaise potato <laughs> yes very good uh aiden what's your buzzer jack i love you <laughs> oh very good good choice oh, wow boom straight in question one question one is what grade is denise jack's daughter in are you familiar with a dish of a potato dish leonese potato holy shit now wow that's the tightest buzzer i've ever had however i saw devlin's lips move (laughs) i got a laugh at that (laughs) (laughs) eighth grade eighth grade is correct devlin well done Mm. one point to you question two question two things on the buzzer i'm gonna to have to watch this one very closely where does jack ask eddie to wire five hundred dollars i get him donuts. galley own
0: Aum, Almville texas jack i love
1: you uh, amarillo texas <laughs> amarillo texas is correct i would have accepted western union as well galley you were close but not quite there sorry mate question three question three for the win or galley can tie What's the name of the bar they steal $20 bills from? Are you familiar with a dish, uh, a potato dish, a uh, potato? <laughs> oh, well, it's potato is Devlin. Is it Red's Bar? No, I'm afraid I can't give you that, sorry. Jack, I love you! Re- uh, Redwoods, Redwoods. No, I'm sorry. Ah, ah.
2: It's an open goal galley.
1: Galley? The Redwood Bar? <laughs> no, I'm afraid, no. The answer is Red's Corner Bar. Oh. Oh. but I do have a bonus point question oh, 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 oh. you're going to like this one this is a multiple choice one so you can only pick one each now the question is how many cigarettes does Jack smoke throughout the movie is it A 19 B 21 or C 23 and a, you can only pick one letter each I'll go with B Galley's going with B which is 21 Uh C Dublin's going with 23 mm. Aidan, uh, I'm sorry that yeah, you yeah, no, no. you're left with A-19, a- which is the correct answer, Ah, oh, a- yeah, thank you. I a bitch.
3: <laughs> If I hadn't got that right, could I even call myself a fan? <laughs>
1: Honestly. We're missing Matt, of course. I'm sorry, Matt, I can't fold your shoes, but I have a very quick Critics Corner, if you want it, Gally. But how
0: do I get there? Well, you can't fly. I can't fly, Patrick, because no. I suffer from no. phobia. Uh, no. <laughs> They're too big. Just go down down. I can't get the train because there is no oxygen, no ventilation. Uh and I cannot get a car because the helicopter that blew up and hit the canyon shot up the car. So I must walk to Critics Corner which is right next to Red's Corner Bar.
1: Hey! Ebert gave it his three and a half stars. He liked it very much. Four Mm. stars is of course his um highest uh, regard. He um so what Midnight Run does with these two is astonishing because it's accomplished within the structure of a comic thriller. And Siskel, who liked it very much as, as well, he said it was thrilling, good writing, wonderful acting. I love the film. Um, they, they very much liked the take on, uh, you know, fresh take on the odd couple formula. Um, LA Times... Um, described it as a Damon Runyon-esque uh, Oddballs film. And Letterbox has a 3.5 average score, where Griffin said, that's a perfect movie. And Patrick Willems said, every other movie should try to be a bit more like Midnight Run. <laughs> uh, <okay. laughs> and Misha said, Leonese Potatoes. And Moshek said, Joey Pence wearing the finest mulleted comb over I've ever seen. <laughs> um, so in a, all in all, it's a very positive outlook, uh, for the film online.
0: Anyway, um, well, Aiden, that, that leads us to our final thoughts and our recommendations. So do you recommend Midnight Run? And do you have any final thoughts on the movie?
3: I. Highly recommend this movie. I, I honestly, it's one of my, it's one of my absolutely favorite. I know I, I, the cat was out of the bag before we even started recording this thing about what my admiration for this and how it makes me feel and how solidly I think it's put together and how perfectly it works as a, as a, as a buddy movie and as a, as a, as a, like, yeah, as a, as an action thriller essentially as well. But, um, yeah, and, and it all, this is going to be something that I'll always go back to watch and it'll always make me feel the same, like, like positive, upbeat feelings. And it'll be, be, and part of that's because of the way it makes me feel about uh, my, my relationship with my dad. And part of it is just because of how solid the thing is. And I know that like long, like hopefully in quite a, you know, in the, in the far future, when I don't have my dad around anymore, I'll still have, this and the move and uh how that mo- and just how it makes me feel about all of that
0: what about you patrick you were a first time viewer yeah
1: well maybe i saw a few scenes here and there and so this feels like a film my mum and dad should have watched when they were younger um i've been trying to hide my sandwiches throughout but it's quite hard you know especially um I think you can enjoy oh, something seen a lot more. I've seen them uh... popping
2: out your <laughs> neckline.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it's, it, it brings me on. I'm saying this because like <clears throat> I knew I'd enjoy it a lot more talking to you guys because I watched it twice this week and the first time I thought, yeah, this is all right. Like it was perfectly enjoyable and okay. And, um, I, came away from it expecting something a bit harder hitting and De Niro-esque and, uh I don't know, a bit darker. And I watched it the second time and it clicked and I loved it and I thought it was a hoot and really enjoyable. And I was laughing along and I then started to notice the Groden nuances of performance and appreciate how good De Niro was and how well the script was put together because the plot, I thought, is really terrific, actually. It's not... A a wholly original film, but it feels fresh and everything. And Siskel said he preferred it to Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, which I brought up earlier. I disagree. I'm a huge Planes, Trains, and Automobiles fan, but my my point is that had I watched this at the same time, I grew up with Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and had I grew up with this, maybe I'd have more of an affinity with it and I could compare the two a bit more, but so I I recommend it. I, I do. It's really great, but um from my perspective don't go into this thinking it's a full-on thriller or or, or a serious like proper serious de niro film please go into this with um more open mind of um that you're going to have a bit of fun and an adventure and and really enjoy these two characters getting to know each other because it's a character study that's that I um I found very kinetic and appealing throughout, um, especially the second time, which you know, that's an odd recommendation just saying that you should appreciate something the first time. But anyway, um I did really enjoy it. I was blown away by Elfman's score because I wasn't expecting it. Um and we and we touched upon how it looks earlier. It's I think it's really well put together, but that I think's testament to breasts breasts direction and it did feel like something quite solid was being made that was elevated by character uh, and uh, acting for me um gally what what about you
0: yeah i think i think the same i think um i think the one thing i would say is i'll, I'll slightly dis- not disagree but i wouldn't I wouldn't caveat it for those people that are like, oh, it's a De Niro film. I think that's part of the surprise is that you're going to go in and think it's going to be a De Niro film. Yeah. Obviously it, it, it comes with certain expectations. Yeah. But, but, uh, but obviously there are a generation, uh, behind us that have only ever seen him be fucking dirty grandpa. And actually this is the kind of like, this is the comedic performance that if you're going to go in for a De Niro, yeah, Kay's funny and meet the parents and, yeah, but but actually, you know, watching watching an actor at the top of his game and an and a star as well, be so comfortable in his own skin to to do a film like this, and also showing not how good an
1: actor he is, right?
0: Yeah, well, there are just it's like it almost makes you go, well, yeah, acting is just acting, whether it's in comedy or drama or you know in an action movie, it's just it's acting, and the whole idea is that you believe the character that they are portraying and you buy into the, and you empathize and you identify and you go on the journey. I did all of those things. The surprise for me came with one, how comfortable De Niro was at being very normal and two, just how strong Grodin was and in a way I think it goes for all of the ensemble that it's a Robert De Niro movie, it's a it's a whole collective effort and, and I think it, it, it speaks to uh martin new Yorker breast, um uh, literally cultivating that energy and channeling it and structure you know structuring a movie that allows these people to play yeah i'm not suggesting that that guy on letterbox is right not every movie needs to be like midnight run schindler's lists you know different vibe <laughs> but you could you could argue that more comedies should look at midnight run and go ah structure is actually really important and you can't just have funny people on screen and just think you're going to smash it out of the park. Yeah. So yeah, I think this is a really good example of a strong screenplay, strong actors, strong craftsmen all coming together and making a really fun film. It's not going to change your life, but it definitely, definitely is something that will entertain you for two hours. So yeah, strong recommendation for me. What about you devs?
2: Uh, when you mentioned that the ensemble was was really strong that's the fact that the most memorable person from when i was a kid watching this was dennis farina telling philip baker hall he was gonna bury a phone in his head (laughs) 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 is is indicative of how a, a film like this can really bury its way into your psyche and it is just it is really fun i aiden when you were talking about um the the solidity of it like the the just kind of that really it's workmanlike becomes an insult and that's bullshit because it's hard to be a fucking craftsman it's hard to be somebody who can make something that isn't um selling itself on kind of peripheral nonsense like to create something that's 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 going to resonate with people in such a way that I wouldn't hesitate to show this to kind of anyone I would be so happy for to to sit down and watch this at any time with virtually any group of people it manages to miraculously avoid um a lot of times you know like especially in the late 80s through into the mid 90s you go back and you watch some of these films and there are some of these little disappointingly retrograde kind of points mm. and there's a lot of like uh, it was okay at the time, and I didn't get any of that from this film. No, no, I think nothing, you're right. Then nothing made me feel weird, and like, and that's so joyful. And yet, the the stakes are within the, the the confines of the film. The stakes are there. You know, it's not like you said. It's it's not um, it's not universe altering. You know, rings of power bullshit. It's yeah. It's a, a guy who has to get a guy to another guy because he's pissed off another guy and somebody might actually get hurt. <laughs> the harshest and darkest part of the film is Dennis Farina threatening a guy in a limo and offering an unrealistically short backswing backhand. <laughs> and yet that works because you feel it. And you don't need it. You don't need the kind of, you know, you don't need grotesquery. You don't need kind of um and the, the, the language in the film just, I don't know, I love a, a bit of creative swearing. It's, you're reveling in the joy of the silly language, you know, it's, you know what's crazy, um, like to think of what you just saw saying that is, this is, it's an 18 certificate
1: and that's held up in the BBFC. And at the time it was, it was passed with two cuts and the two cuts were De Niro picking the lock because the guy, uh, James Furman, who, who was head of the, BBFC thought it was a, you know, it's an imitable thing at the time, and that was why it was cut. And it was given eight. they wanted a fifteen, but the language was deemed. They say fuck a lot in this film, like to, you know, on the high count of the BBFC, even though it's kind of witty and humorous and and in its delivery and not kind of malicious all the time. Especially Joey Pant's stuff is is just language. And um then again, in the nineties, I think they reappraised it and they put the two cuts back in. And that's the version I got in the DVD, so you can see the lock picking. Nice.
2: But mm. remains an eighteen, which I um, thought crazy. was crazy. Interesting when you compare it to um <laughs> the way Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg will talk about their films that they did, like Shaun of the Dead and, and Hot Fuzz, and they'll say that they were pushing. They knew exactly where the line was to go from a fifteen to an eighteen. And if you look at like Shaun of the Dead, is like graphically violent, a bunch of horror and gore, and they drop a cunt in there and but they say that they knew they, they knew they could get away with one cunt if they reduced four yeah. fucks or whatever whereas i never felt like any of this language was all that barbed i was i was surprised to see it was an 18 yeah it really was. was well where can
0: our 18 plus listeners find
1: midnight <laughs> yes 18 people listen to
2: this podcast
1: it's
0: quite hard to find
1: Gelly, oh i I got myself a DVD from eBay, but you can buy it online. But at the moment, it's not on any UK streaming services that I could see. Devlin, is that right?
2: Uh, yep, N- nothing, uh, to stream with. I don't yours. know about South Korea. Nothing to stream. What about Canada? Bundled.
3: I found it uh, through Amazon Prime, but I did have to purchase it for the low, low mm-hmm. price of $14.99. And that Canadian and that dollars. Canadian. Five... About a million dollars
2: US. <laughs> That's that's five oh, uh, that's five uh, five point yeah, it's five point nine nine of King Charles's pounds in the UK. Okay. <laughs> yeah, the Canadians yeah. will love that as well, you know.
3: When we get our freshly minted cash with his face on, it'll say it soar in value.
0: Aiden, it has been an absolute Thanks, pleasure. Aiden. Thank Aiden. you very much. Thank um, you,
3: lads. This has been a great laugh again.
0: Before before we had, it would be remiss of me. To shill. Um. So Devlin, please tell our listeners where they can buy some stuff. I think we should have some Midnight Run t-shirts. We need to spread the gospel of the movie through the selling of cheap Fruit the Loom t-shirts. I actually we don't <gasps> know Fruit the Loom, do we? We're How dare
2: you? Because
0: yeah, we keep our prices <laughs> high because we are sustainable. <laughs> if
2: <laughs> in if I may, <laughs> interject, uh, our, our t shirts are made by the good people at T Mill, which is a fully self sustainable, uh, uh, carbon neutral site in the Isle of Wight. And uh, you can get that through devlindosdrawing.tmail.com. That's where we have our shirts, posters, prints, totes, all sorts of bollocks. Um, I just <laughs> put a, um, a foxy brown series of t-shirts on there, which I'm very proud of. Uh, uh, so that's devlindosdrawing.tmail.com, although you can access that a lot more easily at rewindmoviecast.com. That's the website. For this podcast where you can find links, show notes, all the previous essays that we have made over the years. Uh, you can go back through the archives and listen to Free Jack.
0: Very, very, very true. Also, listeners, if you like what we do, please like, share, subscribe. Pen as a wee review. Spread the gospel. Theme. That's all we ask. Nothing cost you anything apart from your time which is normally the most valuable commodity but we don't charge you for that, that's the, that's the key bit that you're missing so yeah, please help out this bondsman by giving us some some reviews, for Christ's sake um, yeah, happy days <laughs> Um right, we will say our goodbyes then team, shall we? I think that seems like a good idea <laughs> <laughs> I know you had money I didn't know you had money. It's Gally in Glasgow. Stay safe, everyone.
2: Have a cream soda. It's Devlin in
0: London. What are you, a comedian? Get out of here, you bum. It's Patrick in London.
3: In the next life. This is Aiden in Vancouver.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast.